I uh, had originally planned to cover two chapters today because Genesis chapter 33, which is where we're at, is only 20 verses. It's very short, and to be quite honest, I, I'd listened to three or four other preachers. It's part of what I do to get ready for a chapter is I'll, I'll read through the chapter, I'll outline the chapter, I'll look up the different commentaries, I'll kind of read through that, and then I'll listen to some other guys that I really admire, I think highly of, preach through the text and see, is there something here that I'm, you know, missing? And most of the time I was faced with these guys were lumping two or even three chapters together because 33 and 34 are pretty short. And uh, so I thought, well, that's what I'll do. And so as I got to reading through it, it was like, it is short, but there is so much stuff in here. And to be quite frank, I think a lot of times the reason there's a lot of this stuff that's glossed over is we as a society are so urbanized, we're so used to soft-handed city life that we miss a lot of the things that are going on in Scripture simply because we're not familiar with it. We're not familiar with what kind of back-breaking lifestyle these guys were leading. And quite frankly, it's it's instructive to me to look at God for the most part as we're going through the Old Testament or the New Testament the disciples that he's calling are they're men who are very accustomed to hard work outside work they're not soft-handed soft lifestyle men they're men's men I mean Jesus himself was a carpenter he calls fishers I mean that was a very hard laborious thing at that time and it's the same thing with the patriarchs these are not guys that are just sitting around on cushy couches barking orders to people. They, they were living a very outdoor, agrarian, physical, active lifestyle. And there are things that we will miss out of these passages simply by virtue of not being familiar with that lifestyle. I think maybe that's one of the reasons I'll embarrass him since he's not here. One of the reasons I really enjoy uh, listening to Justin preach, for example, or teach is he is so accustomed to that agrarian lifestyle, he picks out points that I sometimes would have missed because he's just more familiar with it than I am. And I grew up on a 27,000-acre farm. I mean, I'm not unfamiliar with farming, okay? But even the way that we do it today is so different than it was done thousands of years ago because everything is so automated today, right? I mean, the hardworking men of today and the hardworking men of yesteryear are not sometimes even able to be categorized the same. So anyway, I say all that to say there's no way I'm getting through two chapters. We're going to get through this one, hopefully. I only have 15 pages of notes, so we shouldn't be here past 3 o'clock. I told, I told my wife last night, I was like, that's a short chapter. I've done all this study. I mean, I'll be read. I'll be in bed like by midnight, and uh, no, it was not happening. So, <clears throat> so here's what we'll do. Let's run over. I tell you all the time, a good teacher does review. And by the way, I should probably say this. There's a reason that I run through a review every time. There's a reason that we as pastors review the chapter that comes before and the pieces of Scripture that come before. And that's because no piece of Scripture can just be taken by itself. There is a context that it sits in. And we want to have the proper context for this piece of Scripture that we're going to exegete in your mind. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to cover chapter 33 today where Jacob finally meets up with Esau again after 20 years of separation. We will see Esau come out to meet him with 400 men of war. But instead of attacking Jacob, he's going to offer protection. 
from those 400 rugged men. He offers to leave some of these men to protect Jacob and Jacob's camp. It is a beautiful picture of the Lord working in the hearts of people to accomplish his purposes. So let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people. Build them up through the truth of your word, Lord. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to both your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name that we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. Last time I started out by telling you that God watches over his people as the apple of his eye. And by the way, that comes from Zechariah 2.8, if you're wondering where that phrase comes from. The apple of the eye is, we call it the pupil. In that day and time, it was known as the apple of the eye. It was the middle. It was the very center. <coughs> Zechariah 2.8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations that plunder you, because he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. God watches over his people as the apple of his eye. By the way, Psalm 17.8 and Deuteronomy 32.10 are two other places where scripture in the scripture where God references his people as the apple of his eye. And that's significant. Think about how you would guard the apple of your own eye. Right? With absolute diligence. You'll make sure nothing pokes it, scratches it, hurts it. If someone or something does, you'll fight it off in a hurry. And God says this is how he looks after his people. With absolute diligence and care. I told you last time, if you're a Christian, that includes you. Contrary to popular belief, that promise does not apply to unbelieving Jews. But instead, it applies to all those and only those who have faith in the Messiah, that is to say, in Jesus Christ. I fleshed that out a little bit for you last time. Remember, we looked at passages like Romans 9, 6 through 8. That tells us not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel and not all the children of Abraham are counted as children simply because they're his offspring. We also looked at 2 Corinthians 1.20, which declares that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Not in Abraham, not in the lineage of unbelieving Jews, but in Jesus Christ. And finally, we looked at Galatians 3.6-9, which said... Uh, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it's only those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's those who are faith, who are of faith that are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's what it says in verse 9. So if you don't have faith in the Messiah, that is to say if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, then God says you're not a true son of Abraham no matter what your genetic descendants is. Because all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus, not in Abraham, not even in Moses, in Christ. So the true people of God are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul, a naturally descended Jew and a believer, says in Galatians 6.16 that those who have faith in Christ are the true Israel of God. That's God's word. It's not just Paul's word. That's the inspired word of God. And Jesus Christ, by the way, said the same thing, in essence, to the Pharisees of his day. 
So those who have faith in Christ are the people of God, regardless of where their genetic lineage comes from. Those are the people who have full access to all the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's going to come into play because we're going to see that in Jacob's life. We're going to see Jacob access that same thing. We're going to see God watch over Jacob diligently as he watches over the apple of his eye. We're going to see God work in the heart of an unregenerate carnal man in order to protect Jacob, his beloved. Christian, he still does that today for you. He still does that today for you. He does not love Jacob more than you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are as much in that inheritance as Jacob was. Back in Genesis 32, we saw Jacob go into crisis mode and we saw God answer Jacob's need in a very odd way. Remember, it had been 20 years since the brothers had seen each other, and so Jacob had sent messengers to Esau to let him know, hey, I'm coming home, I want your favor, I want things to go well between us. In fact, let's just read verses 3 to 7, that's Genesis chapter 34, we'll read 3 through 7. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Instructing them, thus so say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So Jacob is basically saying, listen, the only thing I want is for it just to go well between us. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there's 400 men with him. And the very next verse we say we see Jacob, it says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Obviously so. 400 men. By the way, 400 men is not a small army. I mean, I say that. You know, he came out to meet him with a small army. That's not a small army. Okay, that's, that's not a, in a land battle, it's not a small army today. For that day and time, 400 men was a pretty good-sized force. 400 men in today's military would be two companies worth of soldiers. That's almost a dozen platoons. That's a sizable force even today. In that day and time, that was a big group of rugged fighting men. So, So there's a reason that Jacob is anxious. Jacob is seized with fear. This is not a force of men to be trifled with. He knows the last time he saw his brother, his brother was breathing death threats to him. And now that same brother's riding out to meet him with a sizable group of fighting men. This does not look good. <laughs> and yet what God is trying to get across to Jacob is it doesn't matter what it looks like. Stop looking in the natural and start trusting my word. I told you I'm going to keep you safe. I told you I'm going to bring you back to this land. I told you I'm going to, I'm going to watch over you. Yeah, but there's an entire army coming to get me. And God is in essence saying, what is that to me? Do you think 400 fighting men is too much for the God of heaven? I said this last, 180,000 Assyrians is no problem for him, and that's one night. 400 fighting men is not a problem for the God of heaven. It is a problem for Jacob. If Jacob had to believe that he had to solve this in his own strength in his own way he has no 
hope. He has no chance. And that's the point. Remember, Christian, God is taking Jacob through this. To t- There's a reason. Are you going through trial right now? There's a reason for it. God does not give superfluous suffering to his children. Let me explain what I mean by that. He doesn't give you suffering or trial for no reason. He is growing you in that trial. He is showing something to you. He is shaping you in that trial. And that's exactly what he's doing with Jacob. He's bringing Jacob to something that looks really scary in the natural. And he's saying, now you just trust me. And instead, Jacob is just beside himself with panic. He's still wrestling against God. And so finally, God has to intervene. Right? Jacob thinks he's about to meet his demise. He prays to God, reminds God, hey, God, you promised to protect me. And that's all fine, well, and good. But then Jacob lets his fear grip him and get the better of him. He starts to worry. Maybe God won't protect me after all. I know God said that, but maybe that's not what he meant. And he starts to panic. And before long, he's slipping back into the old way of doing things. He's trying to scheme and deceive his way out of this mess rather than simply sitting back calmly and trusting God. What a picture for us as Christians. Don't we do the same thing? Can we try to use our own strength and our own knowledge and our own devices to fight battles that only God can fight? Yeah, all the time. Jacob was a good Baptist. Going to do it in his own strength. Maybe we should wait on the Lord. We will try to win the battle in our own strength rather than giving it over to the Lord, staying calm and saying, Okay, God, I can't do anything about this. This has to be your fight. And I have to just trust you to fight that fight. Without you, I'm doomed. But I'm not without you. God has promised to watch out for Jacob and to preserve him. And yet Jacob is going to increasingly desperate measures out of sheer panic. He's let his fear get a hold of his mind to the point where it's twisted his thinking, his logic, his rationale completely out of whack. And Christian, that's what will happen to your mind if you do the same. When you let fear grip you, when you let your fear control your mind, it will distort your thinking. You will not have a sound mind. The fears you are dreading will become larger than life. They'll become unreasonably magnified in your mind, even to the point where the fear itself becomes more of a danger to you and the people around you than the actual situation you're so afraid of. And that's precisely where Jacob has gotten to. His state of panic has gotten his mind muddied and his logic convoluted. And in terror, Jacob begins dividing his camp up and he sends envoys with gifts to his brother in an attempt to appease him. His panic ultimately reaches such a fever pitch that we find him forcing his wives and children into an incredibly dangerous nighttime river crossing in order to hopefully slip past his brother's army unnoticed. Only by God's grace are there not casualties. So Jacob is the place where his panic is literally making things worse. In a sense, he's wrestling with God while God is already on his side and fighting for him. He's simply getting in the way. 
He's fighting against God needlessly. And it's at this point that we see God show up in the flesh, literally. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, shows up and throws Jacob around for a little bit. God has to step in at this point and say, okay, Jacob, enough's enough. You're so panicked about the safety of your family. You're literally endangering them. And I've already told you that I'm watching over them. Relax, sit back, and trust me to do what only I can do. And I'll be honest with you, we, we as humans hate that, especially men, hate that. We don't like having a situation that's not in our control. Why? Because I can trust myself. Can you? Oh, are you so big and powerful, are you? You think you're the master of your own destiny, do you? Your times are not in your hands. No matter what you think. And we sometimes have to learn to, I hate this, I know it's colloquial. I know it's one of those big Christian sayings that's everywhere, but it's true. There are times where we literally have to learn to let go and let God. God, you're the only one that can do anything about this. And me fretting and panicking and is not doing anybody any good. And I just have to rest in him and trust him. Remember, at this point, we have already seen God as El Roy. If you want to know how to spell that, that's R-O-I. Kind of a weird. But it means the God who sees He sees everything. He knows about the 400 men. He knows about Jacob's fears. He has everything well under control. Consider this quote. It's one of my favorite by A.W. Tozer. He said, when it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who has not surrendered his authority. God, what's going on? 400 men. There's an army coming out to, to get me. Jacob, chill out. I haven't surrendered my authority. I haven't surrendered my sovereignty. You may not be able to control those 400 men, but it's not a problem for me. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. After wrestling with the Lord all night, God answers Jacob's prayer for protection in a very odd manner. He touches Jacob, puts his hip out of joint, and makes him weaker. You're scared of being killed. You're scared of being run over. You're scared of of having to fight 400 guys. I'm going to make sure you know you're not going to fight 400 guys. You're not going to fight any guys. You've got a hip out of place. It's going to be all you can do to walk. God answers Jacob's prayer of protection by making Jacob even weaker and more vulnerable. So Jacob finally knows, stop fighting. Get out of the way and let me do what I can do. Listen, you're not a fighter. I am. That's what God is telling Jacob. You're not going to wrestle anymore. Your days of wrestling whoever for whatever are done. Does he have to do that to you? Does he have to go to that length and that measure to get your attention? To make you stop? Does he have to hobble you to get you to stop fighting against him? 
Does he have to injure you to get you to the place where you'll stop fighting against him and simply trust him? I hope not. Now Jacob will be forced to simply trust God. Sometimes when you pray for strength, God's answer is to make you weak. That's not the answer I wanted, God. Let me try this prayer again. may not be the answer you want, but it's the answer you're getting. Listen, tough love did not start with 80s parents. It started with the Lord. And here's a good example. Oh, God, I want you to answer this a different way. Nope, I'm going to put your hip out of joint. Now think about the things you've gone through. None of you have actually wrestled with God and literally had him take your hip out of joint. In a day and age where there are no prosthetics, there's no painkillers, there's no none of that. Jacob is going to live the rest of his life on a gimpy hip. He's not going to wrestle anybody. He's going to do all his best to even walk. And that was God loving him. He may weaken you because he loves you too. He may do exactly the opposite of what you want him to do because he actually does love you. And he may do that to you too. So God hobbles Jacob by putting his hip out of socket, but Jacob latches on to him and refuses to let go. He says, let me go. The day is breaking, and Jacob's like, no way. I'm not letting you go until you bless me, which shows us he obviously knows who he's wrestling. You would know who you're wrestling with if you wrestle all night, and the guy does this, boop, and puts your hip, which is one of your strongest mobile joints in all of your body. It's the only full ball and socket joint in the entire human body. Very strong joint. Boop, put that out of joint. You know who you're messing with. This ain't just some guy that showed up, okay? And God changes his name. Remember I told you last time that in this culture, a name was seen as being bound up with the character traits of the individual. So asking for a person's name was really tantamount to asking them, what's their defining characteristic? What defines you? What characteristic defines who you are? And what has Jacob's answer been to that question all of these years? I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the supplanter. I'm the heel catcher. That was his name. And now God is saying, you're not that anymore. You were that, but you're not that anymore. He noticed something. He's not changing his name in hope. He's not changing his name and saying, now you've been that up to now. Now I want you to change. No, he has already changed Jacob's heart. He has already changed Jacob's character. And now he is recognizing that fact. By the way, we do the same thing when we ordain men today. We do not ordain men to ministry because we hope that they will be the things that they should be in Scripture. We lay our hands on them and ordain them because we have already seen those characteristics in them. If you would like to have a way to make sure you've got chaos in your church... Ordain people into ministry positions on the hope that they will now change and be a better dude. And by the way, that happens in Baptist churches like every day. We really need a youth pastor. We really need a deacon. This guy's got a bunch of money. Maybe this will make... I have literally had this conversation with a board of deacons. I'm not kidding. We're thinking about putting this guy on. Why? Does he act like a deacon? Is he... Is he Does he have the character and the characteristics that you should expect? 
Well, we're kind of hoping if we did that, it would kind of spur him on. This is a really bad plan that is not being pushed by God's word. It's just pragmatism gone to seed. We really hope that he will take up his checkbook and follow Jesus. Well, you should be looking for a man who has taken up his cross to follow Jesus. Because that's a person who Jesus has changed their heart. That's exactly what's going on here. He is saying this, in essence, you used to be that. And I've had you in the school of hard knocks. And you've been slaving away for a man who is a deceiver and a cheater and a manipulator. And you have served him with honor and integrity for 20 years. You're not a deceiver anymore. I have changed you. And so I'm now changing your name as well. No longer will you be called the heel catcher. Now you will be Israel. You're now a man of integrity. Jacob leaves the encounter limping, but with a renewed trust in God. He leaves the encounter utterly exhausted. Not only has he not slept at all, but he has been wrestling all night. If you would like to know how much of a workout that is, I double-dog dare you to just check your calories. I did this one night. I do judo, of course. I'm not saying I'm good at judo. I'm not saying I'm even good enough to stay going the whole time because I'm fat and I get winded. Okay, But I left my watch on one night to check my calories, and in a little over an hour, I would burned almost 1,500 calories. It is a workout. There's a reason why this 43-year-old fat man has a resting heart rate of 52. It's that. So you get somebody that's really good at that. I, he's not here, so I'll embarrass him. You get somebody like Matt Guzman, grab a hold of him and grapple around with him for a few minutes. See how it turns out for you. It's a workout. He did this all night. And by the way, I don't know if you've done the math, but at this point he would have been 97. It's going to be a pretty good workout on the old ticker. Okay? I think it's God's grace that he doesn't literally have a stroke or a heart attack and die. He would have been tired. And now he's tired, exhausted out of his mind, and he's limping. He's weaker than he's ever been. And he's heading off to meet his brother with 400 men. Now think about that. What I love is we're seeing, we're seeing his courage come back, his masculinity come back. He has no army of his own. He has no weapon. He has no armor. He has nothing but a walking staff and a limp. And yet he sets out to meet his brother and face all of his fears head on. Like a man. No sword, no spear, no shield, and yet, no panic. Just a walking staff, a limp. One more thing. Oh, 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 yeah, the God of all heaven and earth. As Chris Tomlin would say, the God of angel armies, is that his side? It's true, it is. And that brings us to chapter 33. So turn with me there. Let's get started in this thing. I'm excited. We see Jacob acting like a man. Remember, that's a big deal. We we saw him five, six, seven chapters ago. Kind of the effeminate brother, right? He hangs out in the tents. I don't need to go out there and, you know, dirty my hands with all that work nonsense. And by this point, we've seen God change him very much. He is now a tough and rugged man himself. And we're about to see that. So verse 1, 33, chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. 
So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So notice here he's basically ranking everybody, right? He puts the wives and children that he cares about the most further toward the back. And, of course, at the very back are Rachel and Joseph. Joseph would have been about six. He's the widow feller at this point. Verse 3, he himself went on before them. Well, there's, that's a change. That's a real change. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So notice what's going on here. Jacob's courage and his composure are back. He's acting like a man should act. Remember before, before the wrestling match, he was sending everybody else on. He's going to stay back. That is basically self-preservation. He's thinking in his mind, hey, if I look up ahead and I see Esau and his men capturing these people or attacking them, I've got a chance to flee. What, a, what an act of cowardice. He was going to send them up ahead and attempt to sneak on past. That thought process springs from cowardly self-preservation. It springs from his old deceitful ways, his self-centered ways, his old self-centered habits. But after the wrestling match with God, after he's weaker and more vulnerable than he was, all of a sudden his courage and his manliness is back. As wounded as he was, as exhausted as he was, he pushes on ahead of the women and children and says, I'll go confront my brother first. If something bad happens, you have a chance to escape now. That is acting as a man should act. He's placing himself between them and danger on purpose. In essence, he's thinking of their safety ahead of his own. By the way, we have men that do that in our congregation. I don't know if you're aware of this. I'll embarrass them too since I'm embarrassing everybody today. We have a team of men who um, are our safety team here at the church. You don't know this, but they get together once a month just for training. Last month, it was at the dojo where they're throwing each other around and you know bruising each other up to practice takedowns. The month before that, it was active shooter drills where these men are training that if there's a threat, they close the distance. That is to say, I will go toward it for the sake of everyone else. That's the drill. The drill is everybody else in the church gets down, and we close the distance. And so if you're one of those men, I know you're, you, most of you don't even know who all that is. Because they never ask for attention. They never ask for fanfare. But if you're one of those men, I want you to know we very much appreciate that. That is acting as a man should act. So after his wrestling match with God, Jacob's courage is back. If Esau is still angry with him, perhaps at least it will give a chance for the women and children to be spared and to escape if he goes on ahead of them. Notice how the plan has changed. He's no longer going to try to sneak past them. He's going right to Esau. God has spoken to me. Something's going to happen. My fate lies ahead, and I won't back out. I'm convinced part of his courage is just him again trusting fully in God. God has told Jacob he's watching over him. Jacob is resting in that again. Instead of wrestling against God, he's going to face his fate head on with courage, resolve, and dignity. But he's also facing it 
with a character trait that we have not seen in him before. It's a character trait that's a fast-track recipe for godliness. Perhaps the most defining characteristic of Jesus Christ and his incarnation. It's the character trait that God promises never to despise. It's a sure sign that Jacob has indeed been changed by God. It's a character trait that Esau has never before seen in Jacob, and now it's on full display. What is it? Humility. Jacob is bowing himself down to the ground repeatedly on a bad hip. This was not a painless exercise. But he's treating Esau as if Esau is a king and as if Jacob is a peasant. He is showing honor, which comes out of a heart that it's humble. So notice this. Notice that God's remedy for the tension and hatred between these two was humility. And yet it came out of Jacob first. And we can say, well, it should have been Esau showing you. He was the one that was in the wrong. He was more in the wrong than Jacob was. Maybe so. Esau's the carnal one. Esau's the one that was threatening Jacob. Maybe so. Esau doesn't have a right to be murderously mad at Jacob anyway. Tricking dear old dad out of the spoken blessing wasn't even Jacob's idea to begin with. Do you remember that? Whose idea was it? It was his mom's. And his mom strong arms him into going along with, with the plan by saying, Hey, if anybody gets mad, don't worry. I'll take the blame. And then guess what she did not do? Instead, she blames him. Hey, you better get out of here. You know, Esau's mad for what you did to him. We talked about that in chapter 27. Why should Jacob need to show humility? Why should Jacob be the one to humble himself? But let me remind you, Christian, this is often God's way. Why should Jesus need to humble himself to humanity? He did nothing wrong to humanity. Why should he be the one? He's without sin. Why would he need to humble himself to the sinner? He doesn't. And yet that's often God's way. It's often how he chooses to restore relationships. And in doing so in this manner, he puts on full display the glory of his impeccable character. He shows openly how magnanimous he really is, how big-hearted, generous, and noble he really is by humbling himself when he has no need to. And Christian, you know here's where I'm going. He still uses that pattern today in your life. He might move you to apologize or humble yourself towards someone that you really don't think deserves it. Well, they did a whole lot more than me. And that might be true. Maybe you think they're really the ones that need to be apologizing to you. And hey, you might be right. Maybe they're much more in the wrong than you were. You might be right. But if God's convicting you to humble yourself in their sight, then you need to do it. Kicking against the goads when God's telling you to apologize and humble yourself becomes nothing more than deliberate disobedience to the Almighty. And it comes out of a haughty, arrogant heart. Humility should be the defining characteristic of Christianity. We don't stand around and demand apologies from the rest of the world. 
If they're 99% wrong and I'm 1% wrong, then I should be willing to, when the Spirit of God convicts me of that, to go humble myself and apologize for my 1%. Because in their mind, they might think that 1% is 99 And God's going to use that humility to restore relationships, to open up pathways and and conversations about the gospel. It is Jacob's humility that becomes the linchpin for the restoration of the relationship between these two brothers. It's not on the part of Esau. And now look at Esau's response. Look at what God does in Esau's heart. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. He fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. What restoration. I know it's, it's impossible for us to really psychoanalyze Esau here. There's no way for us to know completely with certainty what he was thinking. But I have to wonder if part of it was the blessing. Remember in, in chapter 27, we saw him very, very angry because in his mind, Jacob has cheated him out of the birthright, which would have been taken over the family ranching operation. And the blessing. I think in his mind, Esau remembers that blessing. And him seeing Jacob bowing down secures in his mind, you know what? I've got the blessing. Here's what it says back in chapter 27. When Isaac blessed Jacob, part of the blessing says this. Let people serve you. Let nations bow down to you. Be the master over your brethren. And let your mother's sons bow down to you. Bless God, Jacob shouldn't have been bowing down then. He had the blessing. Esau should have been bowing to him. That's not what we see. Why? Because God is working humility in Jacob's heart. And he's working restoration in his family through that humility. I'm sure Esau couldn't even stand the thought of bowing himself down to Jacob. He would never have done it because his heart's too haughty. But part of the blessing that Isaac spoke to Jacob literally talked about his mother's sons bowing down to him. So if you're Esau standing there and you see Jacob bowing down to you, I'm sure that's the final convincing act in your mind. I mean, Esau has the family ranching operation, right? He's been been the head of it for 20 years. That is the birthright. He's rich beyond belief. His brother is now bowing down to him. In Esau's mind, it's all coming together. How can anyone deny Esau was blessed? He's rich, powerful, well-known. He has everything a carnal man, a worldly man could ever want. How could he possibly not be the blessed one of these two brothers? He has everything he could want except for one thing. The presence of God. It should be instructive to us that God is not in any of the narrative about Esau, and Esau is not the slightest bit concerned with him. He's wealthy, he's rich, he's powerful. That's what he wants. He wants only the blessing. He doesn't care about the blesser. It reminds me a lot of many word of faith folks. I want rich, I want to be powerful, I want God to make me a kingdom of my own. Yeah, but do you want God? If not, then maybe you should examine whether you really are a Christian or not. Do you want God even if that means you are poor? Or do you only want God if that also means you can be rich and famous 
and well-known, well-liked. See, that's the difference between Jacob and Esau. Jacob wants God no matter what. Esau wants the stuff, whether he gets God or not, he doesn't really care. And the problem today is that there's lots of Esau's filling church pulpits today. There are men who are very concerned about how famous they can become. Men who are very concerned about how many times their sermon or their podcast or whatever has been downloaded and played. Many who are very concerned about how many times their article or their blog post has been shared. They're very concerned about having a dignified and powerful position, especially if it's high up in the denomination or even better, in Big Eva worldwide. They're very concerned about getting a big platform. They're very concerned about becoming famous in Christian culture. They're very concerned about making money from the church and church culture. But they're not too awful concerned about serving others in the local church. They're not too awful concerned about their Christian character. They're not too awful concerned about inconveniencing themselves for the people of the church that they're serving. They're not too concerned about laying their lives down for the people of the local church. That's one of the reasons I have so much respect for my pastors. Because they do it consistently. Years on end. They're not becoming famous for it. They typically don't even get a pastor appreciation gift. Give me a break. These men don't want that. They don't want that lifestyle of laying down their life. They don't want a lifestyle of actual servitude. What fame or fortune could ever be found in that? They're much more, in, much more concerned with being the influencer than the servant. And Jesus had something to say about entitlement like that, by the way. Remember in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus has been teaching the multitudes. He's doing miracles. He's becoming very popular across all of Israel, and yet his time to die is coming. And he starts talking to his disciples about him coming into his kingdom. He's referencing his crucifixion and resurrection. They think he's referencing, hey, he's about to be the big influencer here. He's about to be famous. He's going to be well-known. He's going to bring Israel out from under Roman authority. He's going to bring us to prominence on the world stage. We're going to be known. So what happens? Well, two of them... James and John, that's the sons of Zebedee. They're also known as the sons of thunder. Yeah, real sons of thunder. They have their mommy come talk to Jesus. Jesus, here's the thing. Look, when you come into your kingdom, when you get so famous, can you make sure my boys are your right and left hand? No, it did not come along with, you know, Gen Z or Zoomers or millennials or any of that. That's a pretty entitled response. Right? And all the other disciples get really angry about it for good reason. And by the way, remember, James and John are two of the three inner circle disciples. They're with him all the time. And they get really upset. And Jesus says, you know what? Come on in here, boys. Bring it in. Bring it in. Right? Calls all the disciples to himself. Bring it in, boys. Bring it in. Listen. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those that have great authority exercise it over them. In other words, they make everybody serve them. It's not going to be so among you. Whoever wants to be great among you, let him be the servant of all. I don't think that's exactly what they were looking for. I'm sure that's not what Mommy Dearest was looking for. 
By the way, if you would like to see some serious arrogance, in that same conversation, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And the boys say, yeah, we can do that. Sure. In their mind, they're thinking, oh, he's talking about all the, you know, all the problems that come when you're really famous, you know? Yeah, we can drink that cup, Jesus. We drink that. Well, yeah, people just wanting to know everything about touch the hem of our garment. Yeah, we can drink that. And he's saying, you don't know what kind of suffering I'm going to go through. Are you able to drink that? And when they say yes, he kind of traps them in their answer. Good, because you're going to. Mm. Not the way they were wanting the answer. Anyway, the church in America doesn't need more Esau's. It doesn't need more influencers. It doesn't need more seekers of fame or fortune on the back of the church. We've got plenty of those right now as it is. What it needs is more faithful servants who are willing to lay down their own convenience, their own lifestyle, for the good of the people they serve. Let's go on. Verse 5. I'd like to get into more of that, but I'm not going to. Verse 5. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Likewise, Leah and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Now remember, this is the first time Esau's ever seen them. He's the uncle that literally they've only heard about. They've never seen him before. So it makes sense that he's asking who they are. Esau says, what what did you mean by all this company that I met? All these gifts and stuff you've been sending me. Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. God has worked in this man's heart. He has tender care for his brother. The brother that at one time he said, I will kill him. He now cares for. God can work in the unregenerate heart. God is the one who holds the king's heart in his hand. The Bible does not say God is the one that holds the Christian's heart in his hand. That's the only person he can, he can influence. That's nonsense. God is sovereign. He has not surrendered his authority just because other people are unsaved, okay? Esau says, I have enough. Keep what you have for yourself. Joseph, or Jacob says, no, please, if I've found favor in your sight, please accept the present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that's brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough too, right? Thus he urged him and he took it. This is a big deal, by the way. This is one of those big deals that we often miss because we do not understand this agrarian culture. Part of this culture was you were not ever accepting a gift from an enemy. Didn't do that. If you accepted a gift from someone, it was tantamount to saying, I am in league with you, I'm friendly with you, I'm not going to attack you, I'm not going to come after you, we're friends. And that's why gifts were exchanged. Gifts were often exchanged because they were a sign of goodwill toward each other. So Jacob desperately wants Esau to accept this gift because it shows Esau is not coming after him. And Esau, for his part, thinks, you're, try- you're giving me too much, look, I've got everything I need. I don't need all of this from your hand. But he finally takes it. The other part of that that I just don't have time to get into is the financial blessing attached to 
the blessing of God. 12, then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. In other words, I'll lead the way. Me and the 400 men, don't worry. You do not have to worry about being attacked by bandits. We're going to clear the way for you, son. There's nobody that's going to attack you. I'm here. I'm looking out for you. I'm your big brother, in essence. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows the children are frail. And the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for a day, all the flocks will die. Now, a lot of commentaries will say, well, this can't be true because he was driving them pretty hard just, you know, a few days before. But I actually think he's telling the truth here. And here's why. He has driven them so hard, they can't keep going. It's also very probable this was in winter because that's kind of the time you would have nursing flocks. You can't drive them hard because there's not enough grass and ground and such to sustain them. If you're driving them hard, those babies, those nursing babies are going to die. By the way, if anyone here has ever raised sheep or goats, raise your hand. Ever raised a boar goat? Drive it hard for a couple days and see how well it does. You go on the pasture and like, what happened to all of them? They're dead. I don't think he's actually lying here. Now, I think he has other motives probably in here. I think he knows. He wants, he wants things to be right with his brother, but he also knows his brother's lifestyle is not one of godliness. I don't want our camps traveling together for extended period of time. I want things to be right between us. But there's only so far we can go because of the worldview issues. So Esau said, well, in... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Jacob, you're at, at uh, 14. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I'll lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Now, Seir was south of the, the Dead Sea there. Okay? It, it, was, it would have been a pretty good job. Not bad if you're just a man on horseback. But if you've got lots of livestock and lots of small children, it's going to be a journey. So at this point... It says Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. It doesn't mean he made it all the way back to Seir. It just means he returned on the journey. He was traveling there, and so he just kept on going on ahead. Basically, here's what's happening. I'll see if I can. I should have had a picture. I'll see if I can do this from see, your perspective. Okay, they were. Jacob is coming down basically south and moving to the west, which from your vantage point will look like this. He's coming basically along the Yabuk River until they hit the Jordan, and then down at the bottom. The Dead Sea. And so what's going to happen is they're going to cross over. They're going to go around. And down to the bottom, there's a mountain down on the other side that's called Mount Seir. And that's where they're going. And the problem is there's not a lot of grass. There's not a lot of, you know, they're, they're basically going down this river valley. And so it says, Jacob journeyed to Succoth. That's <coughs> 17. But built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. That means booths. What happened was when he got to Succoth, Succoth is now in the valley of the Jordan River. There would have been grass and water and everything you need for livestock. And I think this is the point where Jacob goes, we've been driving them hard. We can't do this anymore. We've got to give them time to rest. Jacob needs the rest too. And so they stop off there. I think his plan was he was going to originally go on. Meet his brother again in Seir, probably see him, spend some time there, and then head back up to basically where he's going to the journey, which is Shechem. 
So Jacob was traveling much slower than Esau. He stops at Succoth because it's a beautiful place with plenty of rich, fertile grassland. He needs the, the grass for his livestock. It's a place he can stop over for a while. He builds a house. That is not just, that's not the kind of house we think of today. Okay, Might have taken him a few days. It's basically a rudimentary shelter. He builds a place they can basically overwinter. 18, Jacob safely, came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, on his way from Paden Ram, and he camped before the city or outside the city. Basically what happened was he got to Succoth. He probably overwintered there. Then instead of turning south and going to Seir, he realizes that's a long way out of the way. I've still got a lot of livestock, a lot of small kids. We need to get where we're going to and set camp up there. And he's going to Shechem, which is a long way farther into the west. Why would he go to Shechem? Shechem's very, very important. From the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, this is verse 19, he bought for a hundred pieces of money a piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, the mighty God of Israel. That's the, that's the altar. That's what he calls the altar. So after this layover in Succoth, Jacob changes plans, and then he goes and purchases land in Shechem. Why? Shechem was an incredibly important place to a grandson of Abraham, and I'll close with this. Shechem was an incredibly important place to a man who was carrying the blessing and promise of God. Shechem was the place where God first spoke to Abraham and gave him the promise of the land of Canaan. This is where God met Abraham at the terebinth tree and told him, this is the land I'm going to give to you and to your offspring. And Jacob knows that promise is for me. I am carrying the promise of God. I am going to go to that promised land. I'm going to buy a piece of it because I'm going to live there. I'm going to stay there for the rest of my life. Why? Because that's the promise that God's given to me. He's finally coming into his own. He's finally trusting God. Jacob is moving in faith. He knows he's carrying the promise and blessing of God. He knows that God has promised this specific land to him and to his descendants. And so he goes there. He acts in faith. He buys a plot of land. He thinks, this is where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. He's planning to live here permanently. That's why he buys it. Now, it's interesting that he buys it because God told him it's his. Why did he need to spend money on it? Because he's a man of humility. He's a man of honor. He's a man of integrity. He's not going to just go deceive and steal and connive and manipulate his way into a piece of land, which is exactly what he would have done 20 years earlier without that regenerated heart. But God has changed him. He is no longer Jacob. He's not acting like Jacob. He is now Israel. And he's acting like Israel. He's planning to live here permanently. He's going to do it right. He's going to make it right. He finds the person that owns the land and he buys it from them for a good price. And what we're going to see next time is that not all is what it seems. There's going to be some events take place that are going to have Jacob on the move once again. But God is working in Jacob and that's the point. God is changing him. And Christian, listen. If you're in that same kind of trial, if you're walking through that same kind of time, God's doing the same for you. He's changing you through the trial. 